Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, big data and public health. Every time we go to the doctor, we receive a diagnosis, we start a new treatment, the information goes into a database. And when you put all of us together, that is a database with millions of data points that can be used for research purposes. In fact, chances are that our own health information is being used right now to gain new insights about health. Researchers are now harnessing vast amounts of information to assess what works in medicine. This new data-driven approach holds promise, but there are some potential risks. And in this week's episode, we'll discuss that with an expert in the increasingly important field of causal inference. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Thursday, January 25th, 2018. I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. Noah, medicine and public health are constantly evolving as new research and technology open the doors to new ways to treat or prevent diseases. And in other cases, new findings are challenging our preconceived notions of what works best. And a key challenge for doctors and scientists is exactly that, figuring out what is best for patients and the public's health at large. That means asking questions like, when is the best time to start treatment in individuals with HIV? Or is it safe to give antidepressants to pregnant women? There are also policy questions that should be answered, such as nutrition recommendations regarding dietary fats. In an ideal world, those questions would be answered through a randomized control trial, the gold standard of scientific research. But in many cases, that's not possible because it may be too expensive, too difficult to enroll the right number of people, or the study itself may be unethical. And that's where big data and the focus of today's podcast comes in. Researchers are now able to harness vast amounts of existing information on patients, such as in Medicare databases, to, in a sense, replicate randomized control trials. It's an approach with great promise, but also potential downsides if the research isn't conducted properly. And that's where Miguel Hernan focuses much of his work. Hernan is the Colacatrones Professor of Biostatistics in the Department of Biostatistics here at the Harvard Chan School. And he's a leading expert in the field of causal inference, which includes comparative effectiveness research to guide policy and clinical decisions. We spoke with Hernan about how researchers are using big data to answer important questions about health and the safeguards that need to be in place to avoid misleading results. I began our conversation by asking Hernan to define big data, which is a term you've probably been hearing a lot lately. Take a listen. Big data means different things to different people. And in fact, there is not even an agreement on how big data need to be to be called big data. But in the health context, we use the term big data to refer to these large databases where our interactions with the healthcare system are stored. Uh, Every time we go to the doctor, we receive a a diagnosis, we start a new treatment, the information goes into a database. And when you put all of us together, that is a database with millions of data points that can be used for research purposes. And, of course, there are are very strict protocols to prevent any leaks of personal information. Uh, As an example, there are lots of research that is conducted based on the information of Medicare beneficiaries or information on members of private insurance companies. In fact, chances are that our own health information is is being used right now to gain new insights about health. Uh, In that sense, we are all part of the research enterprise, which I find very exciting. And so just to follow up on that, I mean, is it seems from my perspective that this whole uh, field of big data has seemed to grow really, really rapidly over the maybe the last decade or so. Has that been the case or has it been 
has big data kind of been in use maybe longer than people realize? That's a very good question. People in health started to use big data, uh, big databases probably in the 70s. At the time, the ones doing that were, were a minority, and now uh, everybody is using these big databases. I think that the term big data comes to us from other places, from Google and Facebook and places like that. But um, health researchers have been using big data for a long time. So I know much of your research focuses on the, on causal inference. So what does that mean when it comes to using these large databases of information? Causal inference is a term that has become very fashionable among investigators. What it actually means, what we actually do, is to try to learn what works and what doesn't work to improve health. And we use big data for that. We ask questions like, uh, how much screening colonoscopy lowers the risk of cancer? Or what is the best time to start treatment in individuals with HIV? Or is it safe to give antidepressants to pregnant women? In the past, we had very little data to answer these questions. Uh, for each of the questions, we have to recruit participants, collect data, which meant that we have relatively small studies. But in the last decades, with the availability of these big databases, um, we can study these issues. We can ask these questions and try to answer them in a more efficient way and at a fraction of the cost. And so you touched on it there that, I mean, the, the standard for assessing one of these questions might be to do a randomized control trial, recruit participants, but what big data allows you to do is to maybe to measure the effectiveness of an intervention without having to do that. So so can you give an example of where that might occur? Sure. Uh, well, first, first of all, you mentioned randomized trials, which have historically been the gold standard to learn what works and what doesn't. And the idea of a randomized trial, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, is that we assign people to two different treatments, and we assign them at random to two different treatments, then we compare the outcomes between the two groups. And because the treatment assignment happened by chance, any differences between the groups have to be due to the treatment they are receiving. So this is the best possible way of making causal inferences. Now, in the real world, there are many practical difficulties um, to carry out randomized trials. Some trials would be so expensive that we cannot even consider them. Others would not be ethical. Suppose that we want to learn about the risk of birth defects. Well, we cannot conduct a trial in which we in intentionally expose pregnant women to dangerous treatments. Other times we are interested in the long-term effects of treatments, uh, maybe after using them for 10 or more years, and again, a randomized trial would not be practical. So as much as we love randomized trials, in many cases, we are not going to be able to conduct them. And that is when we use uh, big databases. In those cases, our best chance to learn what works is really the, the use of these big databases. And even when we can conduct a randomized trial, when we can actually do it, we will have to wait three, four, five years until we know the results from the trials. And in the meantime, we still need to make decisions. For those decisions, again, uh, we need some information which will come from big databases. So in a sense, are you basically taking existing data that's out there and then kind of modeling what is ha what has already happened in the real world and drawing conclusions from that? That is exactly what we do, and that is what that is what causal inference is. Um, so we 
we take the data that has happened already and we try to use this, uh, this data to emulate a randomized trial that we would like to conduct, but we can't. And so what are some of the benefits of this approach? And then on the flip side, what would some of the risks be? The benefits are that being formal about causal inference, being formal means trying to be very precise about what is the, what is the, what is the randomized trial that is our target. What is the randomized trial that we would actually like to emulate and then go about try to emulate it. That approach results in fewer mistakes. If we try to do it in a more casual way in which, well, we have data, we do a data analysis, we find some associations and we're trying to, um, to give them a causal interpretation, it's more likely that we will make mistakes. For example, a naive data analysis will find that cigarette smoking during pregnancy is associated with lower mortality in babies with low birth weight. But that doesn't mean that cigarette smoking during pregnancy lowers the risk of mortality. That is just something that is um, that 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 we are guaranteed to find in the data, and a formal causal inference analysis will explain why uh, cigarette smoking really uh, does not lower the risk of mortality in those babies. So by being formal about causal inference, we can eliminate some common biases that we sometimes see in data analysis that are more um, casual or naive. I mean, it seems like when you were talking about biases there and what you met in, in the example of smoking during pregnancy, I mean, it seems like it's an, an example of kind of these seemingly random associations that people can find if they if if they if they play with the data enough like what are some of the common biases that that you that you do need to be aware of um that would separate as you mentioned kind of like a naive, a naive study from like a, a formal causal inference well you just touch on a very important problem of, of this type of analysis with big data which is the problem of multiple comparisons because you can compare anything that you want then just by chance you are guaranteed to find some associations and that is a very uh, that's a very serious problem one way of fighting that problem is precisely to be formal about the question so by by pre specifying the randomized trial that you would like to conduct but you can't um, and then trying to emulate that trial using the big data then you can actually constrain yourself in the in terms of the number of analysis that you are going to do because you cannot do anything you have to do only the type of analysis that will help you answer that specific question and not the other million questions that that could come but that is only one of the problems the other problem uh, when doing when trying to make causal inferences with with big data is that we have a lot of data but that doesn't mean that we have the data that we need of course, we need data on the treatments of interest. We need data on the outcomes of, of interest. If we are trying to estimate the effect of aspirin on stroke, we, we need data and good data on aspirin and good data on stroke. But besides that, we also need very good data on the reasons why people take aspirin. Because people who do take aspirin and people who don't take aspirin in the real world are different. So we cannot just compare them. This is not a randomized trial. Therefore, if we just compare people who take aspirin, we probably have people who have a higher risk of heart disease to start with. 
and people who don't take aspirin who have a lower risk of heart disease, then they will have different risk of stroke, but not because of aspirin. It's just because there are different types of people. That is the problem that randomization solves, and that is a problem that we have in this type of studies. So we will need very good data on the variables that make the treated and the untreated different. And that is, I would say that's a main limitation of many of these analyses, that in these um, large healthcare databases, we may have high quality information some, sometimes. We can have high quality information on treatments and high quality information on outcomes, but not always high quality information on these prognostic factors that are needed for a valid analysis. On some level, you're a little bit at the mercy of the data available to you, where if the data on a particular intervention or the variables just aren't right, you, you, you might not be able to proceed. So is that a challenge that, that researchers find themselves running into a lot where they do want to do this type of research, but the data just doesn't exist yet? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is, that is one of the first decisions that all researchers have to make. They may want to answer certain important questions. They look at the data that they have, and sometimes you just have to decide that there, there is not enough data there, that you cannot uh, provide um, an accurate answer to that, maybe because you have, again, very good data on aspirin, very good data on, on stroke, but you don't have very good data on the, on the reasons why people take aspirin. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, when that happens, um, you probably have to stop there and not try to use the um, observational data, the big databases. On the other hand, there are many other examples in which we do have enough data um, to give an approximate answer. And we can also explore the data uh, in ways that uh, give, gives us confidence in our answer. So we can do parallel analysis mm -hmm. that show that it is unlikely that our results are explained by differences between the groups. Those, that is what we sometimes refer to as sensitivity analysis, which are a very important part of all the an analysis of big databases. And in doing the sensitivity analysis, is that where something we're like controlling for like confounding variables comes in? Or is that or is like a confounding variable more like we were talking about with like the reasons someone would take aspirin? There are many different types of sensitivity analysis. A type that we like a lot is something known as negative controls. So the way this works is, uh, let, me, let me give you an example. A few years ago, we conducted a study using a large database of electronic medical records, and we wanted to, to estimate the effect of, of statins, which is a treatment for cholesterol, on diabetes. So we found that people who initiated statin therapy had a 10% or so increased risk of diabetes compared with people who didn't. Now, this might be due to many reasons, and one of the reasons is that people who start statins um, are by definition seeing their doctors more often. So it is possible that statins do not really increase the risk of, of diabetes. What happens is that you start studies, you go to a doctor more often, and you are more likely to be diagnosed with a diabetes that you had already and would not have been diagnosed otherwise. Okay, so how can we 
how can we learn from the data whether that is likely to be the explanation or not? We can use a negative control, meaning we can find another outcome, which is not diabetes, that is not expected to be associated in any way with statin therapy, but that, but that could also be increased if you go to the doctor often. For example, uh, gastric ulcer. Some people may have some, um, um, uh, some symptoms of ulcer, but they are not diagnosed when the symptoms are mild unless they, they go to the doctor for other reasons. So we did the same analysis that we have done for statins and diabetes, but now for statins and, and ulcer. And we found that there was absolutely no association between statins and ulcer. So that gives us some confidence that the association that we have found between statins and diabetes was not due to visiting the doctor more often. Interesting. So you, you almost like test something that's unrelated to, conf to kind of validate what you're doing in the, in the, in the study. Exactly. That's really interesting. To, to kind of continue it with the statin example, um, you know, if I'm someone at home and I'm reading a story about statins and cholesterol, um, you know, I guess the first thing would be, you know, check with your doctor. But if someone is reading a study about the latest findings on statins, I mean, what are some things they should keep in mind when they're, when they're you know, reading news coverage of this type of research to maybe find out, okay, this is something that is worth paying attention to, worth, you know, digging a little deeper into. There are a few things that you have to pay attention to. One is, of course, whether there is appropriate adjustment for the difference between the differences between treatment users and non-treatment users. Another one is how the treatment group is actually defined. Because you can define treatment group in such a way that guarantees that treatment is going to, to be good. But it has nothing to do with the true effect of treatment. And one example is the use of statins in cancer patients. Imagine that you define the use of statins in cancer, in cancer patients and say, well, anyone who has a cancer diagnosis at the start and then after the cancer diagnosis starts statins in the next four or five years will be in the statin user group. And everyone who doesn't start will be in the in the, in the non-user group. Okay, now imagine that someone dies one year after cancer diagnosis. That person has very little chance of being in the, in, the, in the user group because has died very early. So that person will be automatically put in the non-user group. That means that just by defining users and non-users in that way, we guaranteed that non-users will have a shorter survival time than users. And that is a type of bias that is, not, is sometimes known as immortal time bias because someone who is a user because has lived, uh, because has started starting four years after diagnosis of cancer is by definition immortal for four years. So that type of um, classification of users and non-users are as important or more important than the proper adjustment for uh, differences between groups, and sometimes it's not given enough attention when reading a paper or, or, by, or by the media when they report on a paper. So, I mean, it seems like what you're saying is, I mean, researchers need to be incredibly strict in kind of setting the parameters. What is the process like if you want to kind of conduct one of these studies? I mean, how, how does that, what is that process like in terms of making sure that you are being strict about when you're setting the follow-up times, you know, like what does that process look like in, in building out one of these studies? 
Well, the funny thing is that we've always known how to do this right because we conduct randomized trials in which some basic principles of study design and analysis are followed. And the problem is that for some reason, when we started to analyze these big databases, we forgot about those basic principles of design. It turns out that uh, some of the, of the, uh, of the best-known failures of observational research are just the result of not following the same rules that we would follow for a randomized trial. So once we, uh, we go back to the big databases and we analyze this data, as I said, making sure that we, we have defined the randomized trial that we would like to, to mimic, and now mimic it. If we do that, then we will define our groups correctly, we define the follow-up correctly, and the only thing that is left, and only is in quotes here, the, the only little thing in that, that, that is left is to adjust correctly for the differences between the groups. That's always going to be um, the biggest limitation of observational research from big databases, that we don't know if we have adjusted for all those differences. But all the others, all the other problems like the immortal time bias or other types of selection bias, etc., those are just self-inflicted injuries mm -hmm. that we can very easily eliminate. And so we've talked a lot of the examples today are questions of effectiveness or safety. So, I mean, moving forward, how do you see this growing use of big data? How do you see it affecting patients and the care they receive? Well, it is already affecting patients and the care that they receive because for many questions, as I said, we're not going to be able to conduct randomized trials. So the only information will be coming from from observational data from some time to come. It's possible that in some cases there, there will be randomized trials at the end, but, um, uh, but in the meantime, we only use data from large databases. Again, let me give you an example. A, a few years ago, there were, there were um, uh, questions about when is the optimal time to start therapy in patients infected with, the, with HIV. There were arguments uh, for and against starting very early in the disease. And there were no randomized trials. All that we had were observational studies in which initiation was not, uh, initiation of, of uh, HIV therapy was not randomized, but you could compare groups that initiated at different times, adjust for all the differences between all those groups, try to mimic the, the target randomized trial as well as possible. And uh, all of those studies found that early initiation was better than later, than delayed initiation. So the guidelines, the clinical guidelines for, for the treatment of HIV were changed based on the observational studies. A few years later, a couple of randomized trials were conducted that confirm what the observational studies had found. But um, for that period of time, the only thing that we had were observational estimates. I mean, is that is that in a way kind of the ideal scenario that you conduct the observational research, it, you know, maybe it influences policy, and then when 
down the line when you can conduct a randomized control trial that's done, it validates what the original study said. I mean, is that, I mean, is, is that a situation you think will play out more often in the future? I think so. I think that this is going to happen more. Of course, this is the ideal situation. It's possible also that in some cases the randomized trials will, will, will not validate what the observational studies found. Um, in, in those cases, we will learn something about what is that we did wrong with the observational data. But in the absence of the randomized trials, is either making these decisions based on no information at all on based on the limited information that we can obtain from big data. And so just a last question. I know you um, run a MOOC through HarvardX, so it's a free online course focusing on causal inference. So if people listen to this podcast, they're really fascinated, they want to learn more about this, can you just kind of tell me a little bit of, about that course and what it focuses on and then um, what you hope uh, the course particip participants will learn? Well, that is a course that describes the theory of causal graphs in non-technical terms. So causal graphs are a very helpful tool because that's how we express the assumptions that we have, the knowledge that we have about a causal problem. And based on a few graphical rules that you will learn in the course, then make decisions about how to best analyze the data. So the course uh, the title of the course is Draw Your Assumptions Before Your Conclusions, and that is exactly what it is, ab what it is about, how to draw, your, draw causal graphs that summarize your causal assumptions so that then you can extract conclusions from the data in the best possible way. That was our interview with Miguel Hernan on big data and public health. And as you heard us discuss at the end there, he does offer a free online class through HarvardX if you're interested in registering. We'll link on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. Hernan has also written a free book on causal inference, and we'll have a link to that as well. That's all for this week's episode. A reminder that you can always find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. <laughs>